You're listening to SAS Nordic, the sassiest podcast in the Nordics. Hi, I'm Daniel. And I'm Thomas. And we are experienced SaaS professionals that are curious about how other successful SaaS companies go to market, scale, build winning teams and great products. Join us on our journey as we speak to Nordic SaaS leaders trying to get hold of their secret sauce. And today's guest is Tom Hendrickson at OpenOcean. So what we want to see in founders, in addition to amazing passion and drive, is world-class skills in something. Something that matters for this business. And we're back with another podcast episode with the SAS Nordic podcast. And it's been a few weeks since the last podcast. We had the big SASS event last week. And I really hope it went well because we are actually recording this before the event, just a few days before. So what do you say, Daniel? We hope we are still in business, right? Amen. I, I, I hope. I hope it all went well, and I hope we're still in business, and I hope that people still like us. Yeah, and I hope the dinner that we planned Friday night with our wives also was a nice one. Yeah, because that's the only thing they've been looking forward to, nothing else. Absolutely, and I want to get out in the forest picking some mushrooms in the weekend if I'm still a human being. But uh, let's hope for that, and now we're back. I mean, on the regular schedule, doing podcasts and uh, expanding the SaaS community in the Nordic. So... That's a good thing, right? That is a good thing. That is a good thing. And you're going to see a lot of these uh, podcasts coming out on a regular basis again every other week, just like you were used to it. Yeah. So, and now we have a great session with one of the uh, great Finnish VC companies joining us today. Absolutely. So we got the hot tip from Fredrik Rönlund that we had as a guest just, uh, I don't know, was it the last episode? It was. Yeah, it was. It was, yeah. So um, we have actually Tom Hendrickson a general partner at Open Ocean here as a guest. And I know that he's uh, quite well known in Finland and now he's going to be known in all the Nordics as well. So let's talk to Tom. Let's do it. Today, we are very happy to have Tom Hendrickson, general partner at Open Ocean here as a guest at SAS Nordic. Welcome, Tom. Thank you. Tom is very happy to be here as well. <laughs> Excellent. It's so nice to have you here and you came in recommended. So we have super high expectations for this conversation here for the next 30-35 minutes here. Oh my. All jokes aside, Tom, tell us a little bit about yourself. Who is Tom Henriksen? Sure, sure. I'm uh, maybe even older than I look and I don't look that young anymore. So it, you know, it goes back, my professional background goes back to the 90s and, and I did some of the classical stuff after business school, like management consulting. But then I actually worked in a startup, believe it or not, already in the 90s. Doing, doing international sales, and, and that was definitely a good, good learning journey. Is it a startup that we would know? Uh, probably not. I'm, not. I'm not sure if they're alive anymore, but it, it was actually called Communications Just on Time, Kojot. Okay. Did uh, radio frequency technology, antennas and, and the likes. So you don't get invited to the parties anymore? Uh, no, no, yeah, like, like I said, I'm not sure they have parties anymore, but maybe, <laughs> maybe they do sell antennas still. Maybe they do. I haven't checked in. I, I really should. Now, now when you say it, I really should. So, so, but then after this startup, I actually got together with a few friends who had a, had a management consultancy working with startups, which then eventually became a venture capital firm, which I was running. So that was my first venture capital firm in the late 90s. 
And then we were fortunate enough in uh, 2001, having met in 2000 MySQL, to invest in this Swedish company, MySQL AB, AB, right? Okay. All the, the founder, Monty, and the technical founder, Monty, and the CEO, Morten, were actually Swedish-speaking Finns. Mm -hmm. So from Finland, and that was the reason why we met them. Okay. That was the reason why you invested, right? Um, maybe not the only one, but <laughs> it, was, it was indeed, as, as you might know, uh, MySQL was an open source, very early mover, actually the company that was the first to make money on the dual licensing uh, business model and really scale a business around that. So it was quite an exciting experience and it actually became a bigger company and a more highly valued company at the end of the day than what we imagined when we invested in it. So that was a positive surprise. So did you make a lot of money on it? It was a good investment. So our, our fund that we had back in the days was a micro fund. It was a 52 million Finnmark fund, about 9 million euros perhaps. And we made 3.6x the fund and it was a vintage 2000 fund. So that was a very, very good fund in that vintage, at least in Europe. Definitely. That sounds like a, like a good investment and a nice catch. It was. It was. And then, then um, after this, I actually ended up at Nokia, if you will. And I, I spent nine years at Nokia. Why do you go from a VC firm that, you know, you have just struck gold with MySQL? Why do you work for like a tire company? <laughs> Good one. We actually exited that VC firm. And that's a longer story that does not fit into this podcast. But, but we exited that VC firm. And then I was looking for something new. And I got invited to join Nokia's uh, new business unit, Nokia Ventures Organization. Uh, through a friend in, in the venture ecosystem. And it was quite an exciting opportunity. And indeed, it was not only about tires anymore, but by this time, Nokia was, was the world number one in mobile phones. And the, the ventures unit was looking at expanding the scope of the organization. So, so we looked at, at investments, uh, acquisitions, uh, getting new IP in, into the company and actually uh, innovating from within as well. And it was a really exciting time. I spent nine years at Nokia and I have to say that much, maybe most of what I know about management and leadership, I actually learned during these years. So it was a great time. Okay. I, I was just waiting for it. That I guess if you're Finn, at some point in your career, you must have worked for Nokia. It's similar to Ericsson here in Sweden. I mean, there is uh, so many people who worked for Ericsson. Exactly. Indeed, indeed. It was the good years of, of Nokia. And then in 2010, my old friends from the MySQL case had started OpenOcean because they wanted to help European uh, entrepreneurs make the same journey or a similar journey, or at least learning from the journey of MySQL as investors. They wanted to support European uh, entrepreneurs. So I first joined OpenOcean uh, as a board member. And then in 2011, when we were raising and, and had secured our first institutional fund, I joined OpenOcean as a general partner. And it's been a, a really nice 10 and a half years almost since. Wow. How do you raise a fund? Oh, my goodness. Uh, first of all, it takes a damn long time. Then 99% uh, of people will tell you, no, come back after your next, you know, for your next fund, after you've shown that you can do one fund. And it's, it's, um, it's quite a journey to raise, especially a first-time a first fund. It's still quite a journey to raise 
a fourth fund that we just recently had have, but it, it easily takes over a year and and it's a lot of meetings and a lot of convincing and, and hopefully you can show a great track record because without a track record, it's really hard to raise a fund. All right. I guess you need to show that you have a, a good direction and that you are a good team that could take care of their money. And, Absolutely. And, take care of the money, hopefully outperform. And the competition is hard because there are good venture capitalists out there. So what, what additional, what new do you bring to the table to be able to essentially maybe take even a little bit off, off their pie? Right, right. So, so speaking about Ocean, what is it that makes you guys so unique? So at, at Open Ocean, we have all been software business entrepreneurs or leaders. So my, my software business uh, leadership was actually at Nokia. So, so one of my teams convinced me to run uh, a new business within Nokia, which was a mobile advertising business, a first generation mobile ad network, which we scaled from zero to $50 million in revenue in, in three years, including an acquisition and having obviously the Nokia capital and brand. So I was cheating a bit, <laughs> but my partners have, have not cheated. So they, they've been founders of MySQL and, and MariaDB, which I've also been involved with myself. So we've, uh, we have started and scaled to global leadership several software businesses ourselves. And of course, we hope that through that experience, we are able to empathize with entrepreneurs and we've found some things that work and some that don't and, and try to help, help the entrepreneurs solve those puzzles of, of scaling an organization and a business. Okay. So how big is your fund now? How much money do you have to give away to uh, aspiring uh, SaaS companies? I, I have to say that we absolutely don't give anything away. We obviously <laughs> invest and we get very, very sweet and valuable equity in return. Of course. But uh, cur currently we have 110 million euros in our latest fund. And, and we intend to invest into 15 to 20, let's say, early A stage companies with with that fund we're still actually raising a little bit more so hope to get another 20 30 million euros in the next few months into the fund okay and coming back to thomas previous question where is this money coming from so uh, as as in most uh, venture capital funds it's mainly from institutions so we have uh, we have european money through the european investment fund we have finnish money through the, the, the Finnish industry investment, which actually takes uh, Finnish uh, state-owned company privatization money as a part of their pocket and invests it in, into new things. Uh, we have pension funds, uh, a bunch of them from Finland. And, and then we have some other institutions like actually a couple of banks and uh, a couple of universities and uh, a fund of fund from England and, and so on. Okay, but I, I shouldn't forget this one. It's it's a very important uh, constituent for us. It was in our first fund, even more so, and still a very important one. Uh, the family offices, so different types of wealth, wealthy families who give a small part of their wealth to us to to further invest, and those often come with interesting backgrounds and experiences as well in business, which we might be able to tap into when when we develop uh, the companies in the portfolio. Yeah. So Tom, you mentioned uh, uh, both MySQL and MariaDB. 
Can you tell us a little bit, like, how many portfolio companies do you guys have today? Yes. So today we have 33 portfolio companies in three main funds and one little side pocket, which is a so-called opportunity fund. Okay. And when, when you're looking at for the 12 months ahead or 24 months ahead, how many investments, how many new investments do you do per year? We used to make only three to four per year. We've been very selective and maybe even a bit slow compared to some peers. Uh, now, however, with the, with the very hot market and everything moving really fast, everybody is moving faster and, and so have we as well. So we've made now six new investments in about 11 months in our new fund. So we've, we've amped up the pace and we expect to continue at that similar, let's say, a similar pace. With the funds, let's say if we look at your older funds, is there a certain date when you need to sort of do exit on those companies or how does it work? There is. So they are, they are typically 10-year funds, which can be extended by a year or two at, at a time if needed. And, and in our 2011 fund, we are in the 11th year right now. So, so we are, are working very hard on exits and have had a few already this year and, and have a few really nice ones coming up uh, in this year still as well. Okay, so what happens then? You need to um, see to that someone goes in and uh, buy your uh, equity or you do an IPO or what are the alternatives when time's up? What happens if no one wants to buy it? Well, well, that, then, then it's not a, not a good investment, I guess. But, <laughs> but there's, there's a, a few main, main ways. I mean, the typical ones, uh, classically, it's been M&A, some large corporation buys the smaller startup and gets its technology and people and, and maybe even business. That's, that's volume-wise the largest way to exit for venture capitalists still today. Uh, then obviously the companies that really succeed might become public companies, i.e. they may make the famous IPO. And here we have a, a Swedish company, actually, Truecaller, which should soon be, be a public company. They have, they have told, told that publicly. Okay. <laughs> There's no turning back now. How big a stake do you have in Truecaller? So we still have around 5%. Oh, oh. a nice chunk. We've got, gone down a bit over the years, partly with this third, nowadays quite popular way of exiting, i.e. selling so-called secondaries selling your shares in the company, parts of your shareholding in the company to later stage investors. Mm. That's happening quite a lot nowadays out there when these big startups are doing very large late stage funding rounds. Right. So Truecolor is from Sweden and obviously you have a few Finnish investments. Where do you predominantly invest? Where do these companies reside? Yes. So our single largest group of companies, about 30% are in Finland since we are from Finland and and we actually have quite a lot of Finnish money in our funds so so that goes a bit hand in hand uh, our second largest one volume wise again is in the UK okay because the UK is de facto the largest uh, market for venture investments and startups in Europe and and then the rest are more or less spread across Europe so in total we have uh, investments in 10 European countries, plus some that have migrated to the US, US already. But we have a couple historically in Sweden, a couple in, in uh, Norway, actually none in Denmark. 
completely serendipitous. We've seen lots of good companies there and so on. Interesting. So one thing that we are interested in here is how do you actually evaluate the SaaS company before you do an investment? What, what do you look at? What does that calculation look like? And it's a fairly brief question that could lead to a very, very long answer because it's, it's uh, not, not only science for sure. That's, uh, there's a lot of... <laughs> we have the time, so go for it. <laughs> that, that was the worst comment you could give because here, here we go. No, but it's, it's a bit of a dark art, right? And it depends on so many things. You know, in, in, I guess, venture investment in general, it really starts with the fact that the beauty is in the eye of the beholder. So what I really like and I'm willing to pay a lot for, somebody else might, might not want to invest in at all or might want to invest at, at very different parameters. I think all investors are looking for the same. You know, you want to have a great team in a large, hopefully growing market. The company probably has a really interesting solution that can make a dent in, in that market. And hopefully they have even proven, even in early stage investing, a little bit that they can go to market so that you can think about what is the financial and business model they might be employing. Everybody wants all of those. Right. But in early stage investment, you don't necessarily get always all of those. So, you know, depending on which parts are strong and which parts you favor and, and, and see there, you may then value it more, you know, more highly or, or less so. If we come to financials, it's a different story because if the company does have some revenue, not to mention profit, then you can do, you know, employ more scientific methods. So we can talk about those a little bit. Please. Absolutely. We are all ears. Give us the science. So, so on a very high level, I guess there is a revenue multiple and typically today, People who invest in SaaS businesses obviously want to see a recurring revenue. So it becomes an ARR, annual recurring revenue multiple. And that's, you know, the meta level uh, valuation benchmark. It used to be between 5 to 10 for SaaS companies. Nowadays, it's perhaps between 10 to 20, sometimes even up to 30. As, as some of the SaaS companies of today show things that we haven't seen before, like, for instance, extremely high net revenue re retention, i.e. are able to every year increase by even up to 50% the revenue they get, they get out of their existing customers. So, so that, that we did not really see before. Salesforce used to be the champion at 110, 15%. They used to be the best in the world five years or so ago. But nowadays, the best in the world are over 150% there. So those do affect a bit the rise in multiples. But I'm sure the high levels of capital available in the market and the overall quite gung-ho market have, have contributed to these multiples going up. When, when you say gung-ho, and I think a, a lot of people have, have reacted to this, and there are some companies, and I'm sure they're great, listed on the Swedish Stock Exchange that have a multiple of 40. Sure. Like, what's, what's your take on this? Is it like, have we lost our footing a little bit, or is this fair? That, that's a really tough question, right? As, as someone who's been in this game quite a long time and seen a couple of downturns, I actually am a bit mm, 
over realistic perhaps here and believe that these these will come down and they will come down to levels where they represent more something that you can model financially as for how the growth and the profitability evolves over the longer term. Um, the caveat to that is that some businesses nowadays, not many, but some are absolutely enormous. The Amazons and Googles of the world, I mean, we could not have imagined that even 10 years ago, not to mention 20, 30 years ago when they were started. So if, if that is a sign of what's to come, maybe some of these will be justified if they become those future, even bigger companies. Right. Right. Yeah, I think um, it's a, it's an interesting uh, space to follow uh, from all kinds of aspects. And um, also one thing that Thomas and I have been discussing a little bit is how sometimes seemingly two very similar companies, but with a base in different geographies, can be worth so much different. Right. Yeah, I don't know if you've, if you've noticed that in any way. What's your experience there? Yeah, we have, and and even in the you know fairly early stages, perhaps a little bit more mature companies than than what what we invest in. But in the next and next next stages, i.e., B and C rounds, at least there used to be up until very very recently, and I think there still is a bit of a difference between U.S. West Coast valuations and European valuations. Uh, so even in startups, uh, you, you can see that. Obviously, companies that deploy and go to market in different regions might face very different situations and different inertia or not for going to market. So if, if that is at play, it might be justified. Uh, however, we are also now in a world where you know, anybody can start up a company anywhere and sell online to anywhere. And obviously that should then le uh, level out the playing field and as a consequence, also actually valuations, but maybe that's, that's to come still. Right. But from, from your perspective, do you see any difference if we just look at the Nordics now? Is there any difference between valuation among the different Nordic uh, countries or it's quote unquote the same? Yeah, it's it's less different than it used to be because indeed there are great Nordic SaaS businesses in in every Nordic country. And by the way, that that's quite a change from even just a few years ago. You know, Norway had only a few, and it was still a fairly emergent market, and and Denmark as well, especially in the B two B space. But now they have really caught up with a lot of lot of interesting and fast growing companies in the last few years. So it has become much more even. Having said that, um, why does Open Ocean only have a couple of investments in Sweden is always a little bit serendipitous. You know, didn't we didn't find exactly the right one where it just happened? But uh, a part of the reason is that at least historically for us, Swedish. B2B software businesses, SaaS businesses have felt a little bit expensive to us. They felt as, although in the Nordics, on the level as, as for instance, businesses in the UK, where competition for deals is the fiercest in all of, all of Europe. 
So do you have any ideas of why that is? Is it because Swedish uh, is a bigger local market or that we have some really successful Swedish SaaS companies out there? Or what can it be? Well, Swedish entrepreneurs have always been very good at designing the pitch and positioning the company and pitching it, right? No, but Swedes really are great at marketing and, and selling. So I'm sure that has, has something to do with it. Um, the competition in the Swedish market has... Uh, evolved earlier than in the other Nordic markets. So, so the big US VC firms have had much more activity in the Swedish market earlier than in the other Nordic markets. So there's a couple of, couple of reasons for sure. SAS Nordic is growing and now we're launching a unique peer-to-peer -peer community on Slack. My name is Nina, I'm the SAS Nordic Community Manager and I would like to invite you to join this exciting forum. This will be the place to network, collaborate and share knowledge with other SAS professionals in the Nordics. The SAS Nordic community is free and open to everyone working in Nordic SAS companies. Come join us at sasnordic.com, we can't wait to have you on board. So when you look at the Nordics, is there any specific companies that you uh, think is extra interesting going forward? And you can't only say uh, the companies that you have in your portfolio. So any rising stars out there? Well, I guess if it's companies that we actually would want to invest in, are you still at, at a very early stage? I probably wouldn't be naming naming them them here right now. <laughs> okay. But but if if we just look at at companies that are already somewhat successful and have reached some scale. I mean, I'll, I'll take one uh, right off the bat from Denmark, Leapwork, just did a big, big funding round. We looked at them a couple of years, uh, indeed, a couple of years ago. We were actually invited to join the round, but then there wasn't enough room in the round for the ticket we wanted to put in. So we actually didn't join the round, but really like the company of, they are in the automation space, automating with a no code platform testing. And, and they are one of the few and, and forerunning companies in, in that uh, field for sure. So that's just you know, one example. I think all Nordic uh, countries have a few of, of that magnitude or, or even larger. And uh, besides them, anyone else that got away, so to speak? Another one which was from the very early days in our 2011 fund was Forge Rock. And we, we, you know, we pride ourselves of usually getting picked in some way, either as a lead or in a syndicate, when we want to get into a company because of our, of our quite strong experience in building software businesses ourselves. And this one we lost, so, so Excel won, won that deal. And, and it was an open source company. We obviously, with MySQL and MariaDB, have quite a background in open source as well. And they were in a really interesting access identity management space, which was only taking kind of off at, at that time, and it really has exploded. And we felt that that would become something, and it's now a multi-billion dollar company that I think is, is about to go public very, very soon. So Yeah, there is a lot of them out there. You, you will find more. You will find more. Yeah, exactly. You win some, you lose some. You can't have them all. Absolutely. But, but, this, but this one, we, we really liked and it got away for sure. I, I think you sit on, a, if I may say it myself, on a golden opportunity in one of your Finnish portfolio companies. I'm not going to mention who they are. You, you probably can guess, but uh, I think there's one that's Particularly interesting, if I may say it myself. Thank you. There's several, and but I assume this one might might be a super super company, if, if that's what <laughs> you're referring to. The, yes, I think they are a super company. Yeah, they they have an amazing business model. Actually, one of the most efficient 
business models which affects valuation and i want to get back to valuation still a little bit but but uh, supermetrics um sells software mainly in a self-serve mode uh they also do assisted sales so that when they get people engaging with the product and and really qualified leads they might even email with them and sometimes even talk to them so <laughs> so but but they don't do much outbound sales so the sales engine is very efficient and at the same time customers stay with the product and buy more of the product and so on so this makes for a, a really good rule of 40 which is the next part i was going to come to in the valuation what is that yes for the people that might not know rule of 40 Tell us about it. What is it? Indeed. So in the in the SaaS uh, valuation methods, I guess this is this is the the really key one. I, it it plots companies on on a matrix where on one side you have the growth rate of the company and on the other side you have the profitability of the company. And it's been proven that when those two together exceed forty percent, but this is for public companies, right. right? So companies at much larger, larger scale. Then you come into companies with interesting, an interesting underlying model and therefore very interesting uh, valuation dynamics. So Supermetrics has been growing, you know, the last four years when we've been here, uh, approximately at a, a doubling pace every year, but they've been doing so while being super profitable. So their rule of 40 has been over 100 for, for quite some time. And that's obviously absolutely amazing right. for the company. So uh, I, I'm far from an expert here, but technically, or correct me if I'm wrong, that model can show some false positives because you can have great margins, but not grow enough and still be on the right end of, of, of the rule of 40, so to say. What does that do to an investment? For for sure, and and I guess when when you're a public company, um, actually it weeds out some of of those problems because those companies are already at scale and 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 so on. But but you can't stare blindly at just just a measure like like that. Indeed, and you know this function has growth and profits, right? Right. Actually, in today's world and in the last X years. Uh, growth has definitely been the much preferred, much more important one of the two when it comes to driving the valuation of the company. Right. So it, it, it is typically for SaaS investors very much more important to find companies that grow fast regardless of what their profile, profit profile is. I'm so happy you mentioned that because uh, uh, I wanted to ask you, uh, growth seems to be the key driver, but how much can growth cost? At what cost do you say, like, okay, you're growing a lot, yeah. but it's too yeah. expensive? Well, again, there are no absolutes. I would say there's many different strategies to grow versus win. Because one is how fast can you grow? The second is what is the game you're playing and what are you trying to win? And what do you achieve by growing faster and probably less profitably than not? So, you know, the extremes in the strategies go from completely sacrificing your margin, selling at uh, very negative unit economics, right, mm -hmm. versus growing very, very fast, to then probably gain market share. But being pretty confident that once you gain that market share, eventually you will be able to 
I don't know, sell more stuff to the customers so that you will actually have profitable customers. Right. Or maybe you can raise your prices if you get get large enough uh, a market share or whatever is the way for making money at the end of the day that makes this strategy worthwhile. But there are many way, many different ways of sacrificing profitability. And some companies, when they do that, if they don't succeed, they then stay like that forever. And it wasn't a great journey, was it? Right. I think there are versions of this where you might sacrifice a little bit and you show that your unit economics work somewhere. I have heard rumors that, for instance, Volt in the delivery space, which is a very tough one to actually have profitable unit economics, is quite unique because they can show in their core markets that it really works. And therefore, they get a lot of capital to then invest in new markets because investors have strong confidence that the the economics and the profitability will work also in other markets. Or then the last piece, of course, is like a super metrics. Maybe you can even grow very profitably and get more and more cash on your accounts and eventually you will use that cash for something really smart. So you mentioned unit economics. Could you elaborate on that a little bit? Sure, sure. So, I mean, essentially, we're talking about for getting a new customer, how much does it actually cost to get that customer? And what is the revenue, the value you get out of that customer over time? And comparing these two, then, you know, the finer details of what do you include in the customer acquisition cost, the CAC? And how do you actually extrapolate the lifetime value when you haven't seen the full lifetime of a single customer yet? You know, those are long discussions and, again, might be more black art than than science. But the simple science is obviously that your lifetime value should be something more than your customer acquisition cost. And in SaaS businesses, typically, we talk about the 3x ratio that starts to be good. Actually, really, really interesting companies might have something like a 10x or even more. Oh, sounds good. So if I would like to pitch my company to you, what what would the five things that you would ask me as a founder to assess my business be? Well, it depends a bit on on what your company is, right? But if, if it's a software business with a global opportunity and ambition. Yeah, SaaS, B2B, going global, I mean found a good position in the market? You know, many many investors like to start looking at the financials and really drilling into the market opportunity and understanding that. And yes, we do as well. But we like to start with uh, two pieces. And one is you guys, the founders. And, you know, no founding team at the early stage is perfect. So what we want to see in founders, in addition to amazing passion and drive, because entrepreneurs need to go through walls, (laughs) and they do go through walls, uh, is world-class skills in something, something that matters for this business. Okay. So that there's a great core to build on, and and then hopefully, obviously, you're great people, so you build a a company with a great culture, which becomes an amazing employer in the future. Is it okay to be a first-time founder? It can be a first-time founder, it can be a serial founder, it really doesn't matter, but those same things still still do apply. Okay. 
And the second part is, is the solution and the product, because we've been, I'm actually the, the only non-engineer here at OpenOcean, but I can get pretty technical when it comes to the data stack and, and stuff like that. So, so we love products and we love data software. Mm. So we want to understand how it works. We want to play with it. We want to think about how you can make it even better. We want to think about how you can scale it so that it actually can, uh, you know, provide solutions to a global global customer uh, base o- over the, the the web and and only then do we want to start thinking about how do you build a business around that and what might that mean for a business so is it important for you that you have solid technical expertise within the team already that you have an experienced CTO or or architect that can you know show you that everything is thought about behind the scenes or do you think that is something that can be sort of acquired later on you have the idea but then you can you know hire that kind of person it's a good question and it's a bit of a tricky one because while i would say want to say that yes you can acquire that later uh, and we've tried that a few times Typically, it gets very hard to get this more deep data, software, technical DNA into a company afterwards. And this we've just learned learned uh, of, over time. So we definitely prefer uh, teams that have that already because then it's likely to remain a strength and just get strengthened over time instead of having the risk that actually we might never really get there. Okay, that's a really interesting thought. Hey, uh, in the line of business that Thomas are in with with the podcast and SAS Nordic, we meet a lot of uh, founders, and for many of them, it's it's a milestone to to raise the first round of capital. It gives fuel to their passion and their ideas. Yeah. What would your advice be to the ones seeking their first external round? Well, there there could be a lot of different advice, but I think one of the really important ones is if at least if you go for venture funding might be a bit different if you're dating angels and so on, although it could even apply there. Um, When you want to meet a venture firm, don't go in cold. I mean, first of all, you need to know who they are and could they fit, fit you in general. And then you need to get a warm introduction from somebody who the venture firm already trusts. So preferably an entrepreneur they've worked with before or an investor or somebody who knows you very well and and knows them. Because venture firms like OpenOcean, we see thousands of software businesses a year. And it's really hard based on inbound emails to actually pick pick some great ones. So therefore, we pay much more attention when it comes through somebody we trust. Of course, that that makes sense. So if I understand it correctly, you usually go in when it's a Series A, right? Yes, an early Series A. So we like the software to be launched on the market. Uh, It doesn't have to be, but typically it is, and have a little bit of commercial traction so we can see how customers like, like the software. Yeah, so then the company could have done a seed round before. They could have some external ownership. Indeed. Does that affect whether you want to go in as an investor or not? Well, it actually might make it easier because it means that some governance might already be in place. We might know the seed investors and and uh, the company might have had some, some good advice and, and development in the 
in the year or so from the previous funding. So it can definitely be a very good thing. Rarely is that a bad thing. Okay. I would say the only case where it's a bad thing is if they took in money from angels at a really high valuation, which they then have not perhaps caught up with in the business development of, of the, the company. All right. So cool. So besides, of course, uh, finding the next unicorn, is there anything else that you are looking for right now? So we, we are always looking for great new software businesses from all over Europe. We love to meet entrepreneurs. We love that we get to see so many of them and, and sadly only invest in, in a few a year. Are you looking for more partners or more analysts? Or how do you, how do, you do if you want to get on the Open Ocean team? Well, that was, if, if I uh, respond to the, the previous one, one first, because, uh, you know, it's, it's a great time for venture. There are more great entrepreneurs and great ideas than ever right now. We see so many and we see so many good ones that it's actually pretty tricky to, to choose the, the three, four, five, six we, we make every, every year. So, so we are very excited about that. And a lot of them actually address this, what I would call fundamental challenges of the data economy that we love to invest in. You know, it's, it's frontier tech, it's intelligent software that helps make the data economy really come together for consumers, for businesses, even, even for government. And what about the second part of the question? How, how do you get on your team? Well, if, if there are openings, which, which there sometimes are, obviously you can, uh, there, there you can apply out of the blue. Once again, the reference might be, and a referral might, might be a good, good thing there as well. But I think we are more open-minded for out of the blue connections because we do actually open all those emails and, and look at all the CVs and so on. But easiest it is, of course, when we actually have specific open open positions and we'll soon have uh, one to two open positions in our in our london office again okay and if i can if i can find a good candidate for for you to invest in can i get the kickback <laughs> i don't know if we like the word kickback but but actually for uh, advisors out there people in our network out there who help us find a deal that we end up investing in we we have paid paid finder we have paid finders fees. Okay. So because because definitely there is there is high value in that. Okay. Good to know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think be, be, before this goes into uh, uncharted territory. <laughs> uh, so uh, it's just a few months left of the of the year here. Is there anything exciting happening on, on your end with Open Ocean that you want to share with with all of us here? So as, as mentioned earlier, uh, there's going to be a couple of, of really significant exits coming up that, that we'll announce when, when the time is, is right. And then, of course, uh, during Slush, because Slush is actually being held this year, it's called Slush 8K. So they take 8,000 persons only this year. Only is, is a very relative term here, uh, uh, but, but to keep it safe. We are doing our legendary open ocean slush poker tournament once again. And, what? And we, we want to, to welcome anybody who is interested to come and play poker. Oh, gosh. I need to go. We are interested. We're interested. I think Thomas is like, <laughs> he has the ambition of a semi-pro. I don't want to say he's there yet. <laughs> okay. But please invite us. You guys are invited <laughs> as, as per this minute now. Okay. There you go. Yes. This was a lot of fun, very insightful, and, and we appreciate you joining us here on the show. Thank you so much. It was a, gr a lot of fun for myself as well, and really nice of you to have me. Yeah, glad to hear, and see you around. See you at the poker table. All in. Indeed. See you at the poker table. 
So Daniel, what's your key takeaways from the episode? Uh, like always, uh, very insightful, and I think Tom had a lot of uh, golden nuggets in here. There's a couple of things I take away, but one was really, if you're a founder and if you're going to at least attract his interest, you gotta be really passionate and expert in the area that you're going to operate in. Uh, so that was key. And then for them, I think the product piece. So it's not necessarily how fast you're growing or how much money you're making from the get-go. They're really digging into your product. They, they come from the perspective where product is king and product wins. So I thought that was uh, interesting for me to hear. What about you, Thomas? Well, related to that was that I thought it was interesting that he found it important to have a technical person on the team, that you had someone, a CTO and architect that had deep knowledge about the technology. Uh, it's not enough just to have a great idea and then think that you can sort of outsource the whole development or anything. And uh, I think also when we think about a lot of successful SaaS companies, there are some tech people that's been there from the start. So uh, something to think about. And also, of course, uh, the poker tournament at Slash. I, I mean, that must be the event of the year. I, I, so uh, looking forward to that. I really hope that we can go, Daniel. Exactly. So if you didn't have any other reason to go to Slush, now you have a reason. There's a poker tournament. And sorry, Tom, you might get a lot of uh, uh, inquiries now for people that want to join it, but it sounds like a fun event. And I think that's that for the podcast. Uh, I hope you enjoyed it and continue following us at LinkedIn. Join the community. And also, in the end here, uh, we like to acknowledge the companies that let us use their software for free. And if you want to do that as well, I think there is a lot of stuff we could use. You can reach out and a company that does that is GetAccept. So thank you for helping us getting all the agreements done for SASIEST. Thank you. See you around, guys. <laughs>